Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith in public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and we are here with Stephen Reeves, who is going to talk with us in our continuing series called Good Politics. Stephen is a great friend of mine and a fellow Baptist of uh, like mind, uh, and he is the new executive director of an organization called Fellowship Southwest, uh, which is an ecumenical uh, organization of churches and individuals uh, and beyond, even friends, uh, working on uh, matters of public interest, especially on advocacy work at the border uh, in immigration and in other things as well that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the program. I'm so glad to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, George. I've appreciated watching the program over the years and happy to be a guest. Thanks. Well, terrific. So Stephen comes to this work, honestly, in that uh, he is uh, uh, a lawyer and uh, also uh, has spent a good bit of time in the advocacy space, uh, working for Baptists in Texas uh, at, at one point on that, and also uh, through the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship on a national basis, and now coming back to this role. Uh, but you'll continue, I know, to work on a national basis, but also now uh, statewide, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, Stephen, I think that the, the shift that you and I have experienced, and I'm a bit older, so it feels even more significant to me than maybe to you, uh, that, that we have experienced in uh, the religious world is that increasingly uh, individuals and congregations are finding their voice. They're, they're recognizing that the split that we have had between religion and politics, between personal faith and public life uh, is a false dichotomy. And that we've got to figure out a way to engage in the public square and to bring our faith with us, but in a way that it honors uh, the full breadth of our uh, constitutional republic and uh, also uh, our faith uh, mm -hmm. that is directed as much toward our neighbor as defending ourselves. So when you, when, when you think, when, when someone asks you in the elevator and says, hey, hey, wh why are you doing all this advocacy work? What's your, uh, what's your quick speech about that to uh, people of faith? Well, for me, it starts with loving our neighbor. Mm -hmm. That this is another avenue to love our neighbor. And in the, in the churches that I've worked with over the years, they have very compassionate hearts, that they have been dedicated to charitable work and mission work, that's what we would call it, but haven't thought systemically. They haven't made that jump from missions to advocacy or charity to justice. And so for me, it, it is um, helping encourage people to do that. And, and probably just as importantly, trying to model and encourage them to do it in the, in the most healthy way possible. Because while I think you're right, there's been this shift in the recent years, there's been several decades of a particular type of faith and maybe a particular type of Baptist engagement in, in politics and public policy that has been a big turnoff for folks. And so, you know, part of us saying, OK, we, we're encouraging you to do this, but let's do it a different way and, and try and do it in a more healthy way, holistic way that's less divisive and more focused on, on folks who are, are suffering at the margins and neglected or, or suppressed or ignored. Right. So uh, to that end, I know you've uh, written a book uh, with Katie Murray uh, uh, called uh, The Mission of Advocacy. 
and and the the title is interesting in that respect because I think it's it's really almost a sucker punch because you, <laughs> you, you use the language of mission, which is really in the sweet spot of many Christians uh, and especially of a more conservative bent, uh, certainly Baptist. Uh, and, and then you, you talk about the mission of advocacy. So uh, is, is that of, uh, how, well, how do you relate the two of those things, I think, for uh, the, the, the common person who grew up thinking missions was the saving of souls uh, over in Africa or in Indonesia or someplace like that, uh, while advocacy is more of a public policy kind mm -hmm. of matter? Yeah, obviously that title is very intentional in that way. And I think for a lot of folks within our uh, kind of Baptist, there has already been sort of a movement towards a mo more holistic mission work, right. transformational development, community development, asset-based community development, you know, really meeting the needs beyond just sort of that traditional evangelism, which is good. But that same sort of jump to holistic hadn't happened when it comes to advocacy. And so I tie those words together in large part, too, because I believe for a local congregation, the best place to start thinking more systemically to thinking more about advocacy is what they're already committed to in what they would consider mission work. Uh, most of our churches and folks that I know are committed charitably in their community, which is great, but they have kind of made that separation in their mind between that work and what is politics. And so we're saying uh, no, those can be very tied together and be a fruitful place to, to start exploring advocacy for the church. Your uh, co-writer, Katie, uh, is a member of our church, and she likes to use uh, a, a, an analogy about this, I know. And it goes back to the old line of uh, teach a person to fish and that person, uh, teach a person to, well, no, give a person a fish and that person will eat for a day teach a person to fish and the person will leave for a lifetime. And she, she says uh, about that, that that is, of course, like uh, the role of charity. You give someone who is hungry uh, food. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, the, the, the role of, uh, of teaching the person to fish is about self-reliance, and it moves up the scale of mission work to a, a, a more holistic uh, view of things. But then the question comes, what if that person takes a fishing pole and goes down to the, the pond and finds that there is a, a fence that's been put around that pond with a padlock on it mm -hmm. so that uh, the fisher can't fish? Uh, well, advocacy work is uh, figuring out who owns the fence and who put it up and how did access has been denied and why there's you know no opportunity for uh for the person to fish. So, uh, so, so I think what you're saying is that, you know, we're pretty good in, in, in our congregations at engaging in really quick short-term fixes of helping people in need. We're even pretty good at um, helping people learn to read or learn to, you know, cook or to rehabilitate them in some way. But the public policy thing goes deeper, doesn't it? It goes Absolutely. to what's going on in our city, in our county, in our state, in our nation with our laws that make it uh, difficult for people to really thrive. That's right. That's exactly right. That's, that's a good analogy. I've also heard the one of 
being at the at a river and there's a drowning man comes by and you pull him out and, and save them. And that's a good act. Then another one comes by and you do the same thing. Eventually you need to ask, how are these folks getting in the river? Who's, who is throwing them in the river? And so we're talking about going up river uh, or, yeah. or going to find out who owns that, that fence. And I think, you know, for, you know, I think there are, are Christians that take their citizenship seriously, that, that derive their political convictions from their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes haven't found that, Church is where you explore that. And so part of what I'm trying to do in our churches and to whomever is listening is, is sort of help folks make that cultural adjustment in our churches to say, you know, some, just like someone feels called to missions, other people feel called to advocacy. Their, their faith leads them to the public square. And that should be, you should be able to explore that in the local church. And for, for, for too many churches I know, they have that has not been there, and there's a lot of reasons behind that. But um, I think that the church, if, if the church is not a place where Christians and people of faith can explore how their faith and their convictions impact their political convictions and, and how they vote and how they act as citizens, then where will that happen? Right. And unfortunately, I think it happens uh, in, in you know on cable news and social media, and, uh, just right. by party line, and and that is kind of getting it backwards. And so it's right. a dangerous thing, but I think it's something we have to, as Christians, wrestle with, with other Christians. Well, and I will tell you that this won't surprise you that um, uh, while uh, there are some who cheer me when I speak uh, in terms of advocacy and politics from the pulpit, never partisan ways, although uh, everyone believes uh, that they know exactly the party you belong to as a preacher based on what you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting. Uh, but, um, but the fact is a lot of, a lot of people, when, when we try to do this, they become very uncomfortable with mm-hmm. it. And so part of it is learning how to speak uh, about it. But part of it is, is, I think, also learning to look into our own texts and realize that, um, you know, that scriptural texts uh, are rich with opportunity for us to reflect upon that. You know, the Good Samaritan story is one of those, right? You know, so the man goes down and and, and is uh, attacked by a criminal and, you know, is, is hurt and harmed and all of that. Well, you know, obviously it makes a wonderful parable and it tells us a lot about, you know, helping and caring for our neighbor, but wouldn't it be better, of course, if there was good lighting on that road and mm. if there was, uh, you know, uh, if, if it was patrolled well and if, uh, uh, if, if the criminal element weren't able to thrive and beset the man and, you know, w- wouldn't it be great if um, there was health care for the man when he was, you know, hurt and it wouldn't have had to depend upon charity, uh, that sort of thing. So all of these things are factors, right, that we can look at, and we might find in our text even opportunity to talk about them in ways that we hadn't uh, otherwise given thought to. Absolutely, and I I strongly suggest for churches that that they start with scripture and and, and really uh, delve into that and think of maybe think about it in new new ways, because that that's important, that we believe there's there's wisdom there, and we should learn from that, and you know, between that start and starting with who you're know in the community, what are you outside the four walls of the church doing? Who are you encountering? What is their story? What is going on? Um, you know, learn root your your work there. You know, rather than your 
partisan political convictions and, you know, who you watch in cable news and that sort of thing. But I'll also say, you know, a part of me does um, sympathize with, with, with folks who um, want in our hyper-partisan, hyper-political culture, right. want there to be some sacred space yeah. that does not invade, that is not invaded. And, and I, and I kind of get that. And there's probably plenty of, of weeks that I think the same thing. But uh, I, I just think that we're in this moment right. that um, our faith has got to be, we have to take our, our faith-informed positions and, and be active. And, and, you know, if you don't read the text, and see God's preference for the marginalized, the oppressed, and in and, and, and favor of justice, mm. I think you're not reading it very well or, or reading a very small part. And so I think for a lot of particularly traditional white, maybe middle-class churches, it's been easy to individualize and spiritualize the scripture. Right. And, and, and we've got to have this place to, to broaden the view a bit. Let's take a particular matter of public concern and use it as a test case for advocacy. Uh, you and I have been involved, uh, you've really enlisted me to be involved in addressing the real plague, economic plague on the poor that is what we would call predatory lending. And more specifically, uh, payday lending, uh, auto title lending, uh, these uh, pop-ups have uh, storefront businesses have grown at an exponential rate over the last 20 years or so. And they are uh, preying on the poor in your, your opinion and mine, and they have uh, found a way to exploit the suffering of uh, poor people and make it worse in the uh, interest of uh, making profits and of saying that they're providing a service. So, here we have a situation uh, where we have a public ill in what we consider a public ill, perhaps. And, and so I, I'd like you to talk more about the problem as you see it and where, where advocacy comes in for uh, people of faith on a matter like this. Yeah, thank you, George. I, um, the problem is, is exploitation of people who uh, you know, kind of are at the end of, uh, of their, their budget and don't have enough money and want to handle the problem on themselves. And they find the quickest and easiest, what seems to be the quickest and easiest way to fix it. And it's one of the thousands of storefronts across Texas that most of the time ends up being more of a trap than a help. Right. Um, folks are not, um, you know, they, they, they are, they, lenders profit when folks can't pay the money back. Right. It's just it's a weird disincentive. It's not like a lending market. And so they have interest rates of 400 percent plus. Right. Um, and, you know, I could talk about the policy and the law uh, a lot, but I, I think it really boils down to a moral decision. Right. Is usury wrong? <laughs> you know, is it wrong to take someone who is having a hard time? and take advantage of them with 400% APR interest. And right. there's plenty of debate along public policy lines, but I think the moral core of this issue, one that we used to agree on, by the way, these, these businesses are only about 30 years old. They're, you know, all the way from the founding of the country, there used to be a common understanding that usury was immoral. You don't do that to people. We have lost that uh, starting kind of in the mid nineties. And so for me, 
that the moral core of this issue is a type of thing that can really call people of faith together. And so um, we have, I've been working on this issue for over 10 years. Texas has terrible laws um, on this. And so we've worked in coalition really across faith lines and some interfaith lines. And in the last uh, six or seven years established a national coalition called Faith for Just Lending that has CBF, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, has Southern Baptist, it has National Baptist USA. You got all different kinds of Baptists, which in yeah. and of itself is a pretty big feat. Then you've got Catholic Conference of Bishops, you've got National Association of Evangelicals. And I think um, there's, there's been progress. We're, we're hopeful for more, but at the core of this is, is a product that does more harm than good, that really plays on shame and, and really um, can impact folks that they're sometimes unwilling to, to share. And so they, they, they feel sometimes ashamed that they needed money then they get into a trap and they feel ashamed that they've been taken advantage of. And so this sort of, this is why we call it predatory. The more a borrower is in this shame trap, the more they fail to repay this, what was an insurmountable cost to them, the more money the lender makes. And so it's, it's, it's the type of thing that I think can pull faith communities together for advocacy, maybe unlike many other things I've seen. Well, one of the reasons it does for some of us as pastors is because when they get into these traps, uh, they end up coming to the church and Absolutely. say, uh, you know, I can't, I can't pay this back. And it's worse than if they'd come to us initially. People often say, you know, well, w- what were they doing before this? Now they're able to go there and, and get along. Well, well th- they're able to do that because it exists, also because it's marketed to them. Uh, but also because it makes them feel like they're regular normal people who are taking out a loan. The problem is they're, they're, they're really not in that situation because the lender doesn't have to make a judgment about their ability to pay it back and, and therefore can just uh, offer it and then sink the person financially, that, which is, is immoral. That's right. The, 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 the mechanism, they, in the case of payday lending, have automatic access to their checking account and they know when they're going to get paid and what they're going to get paid. And so what often happens is, you know, their money comes in, the payday lender pays themselves basically by taking that money. Then they end up having to go back there again. In the case of auto title lending, in some ways, I think it's worse, especially in the South where this is most prevalent because they just know how much a car is worth and they can repo a car. And if you don't have a car, I mean, Dallas has some decent public transportation compared to some places but you're in big trouble if you're trying to try and get to work if you don't have a car. And so um, it is, uh, it's one of those things that I think it's not the financial regulation is not the place you often find people of faith speaking out. Right. But because of that story you told at the beginning that, uh, and I, I've seen it, one of the first pastors that even called me on this was someone who was not known as a social justice warrior or advocate, had not shown at the, at the Capitol, but said, hey, I heard you're talking about these payday loans tell me what to do and I'll do it. There was a family in his church that, you know, couldn't make ends meet, came to the church. They helped them out, came again, and they tried to figure out what's going on here. And they found out he had taken out a $700 loan. And every two weeks, $200 was being taken out of his paycheck. And it did nothing to reduce the amount of his loan. Right. When you see that up front, whether it's in your church or in your community, right. that 
calls people to advocacy in a way they maybe haven't been before. It's, it, to a lot of folks, um, it's, um, it's really unbelievable that we allow this to, to go on. Well, so one of the ways that we get involved in advocacy is to uh, help politicians see that these things are wrong and create laws that will minimize the damage or limit it or protect consumers. And so there was the creation some years ago of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, that Elizabeth Warren was behind and it happened during the Obama administration. Um, but uh, then um, because of the way it was constructed, but even more so because of the very idea, I think that uh, lenders were losing their uh, ability to operate without, uh, well, with impunity, uh, the Trump administration was able to uh, essentially change the leadership of uh, the um, CFPB to virtually make it the lender's uh, bureau of protection. You know, hmm. I mean, it really completely took that away. So now we're back again with a Democratic administration. And I want to hasten to say this is not Democrat good, Republican bad. It's just, who are you representing really? And are, mm. are you representing the people who are most vulnerable or are you representing people who are preying upon them? Uh, and so where do we stand now, Stephen, with uh, the uh, federal protections for consumers uh, in situations like this? Well, uh, you know, the CFPB was a game changer when this happened. And as a matter of fact, I met with then Professor Warren in Dallas. She asked faith leaders to meet and talk about what we were doing at the time in Texas on payday lending. And so from the very early parts of the CFPB, faith folks have been involved. We got a rule that we thought was pretty good, proposed in 2017, change of administration, change of director. That rule was repealed in 2020. And so... Um, I, we are now in a hopeful place that um, the CFPB will move again in a positive direction, but we're still needing advocacy. This is, these are challenging. There's litigation involved kind of both sides. There's litigation from the payday lenders for the first rule. There's litigation from consumer advocates for the second, for the repeal of the rule. Right. So it's sort of a mess, but at its heart, this is something the CFPB, uh, is mandated to do in, in the legislation that created it. And to me, it seems like it ought to be the easiest thing they do. Mm. That these are the most vulnerable borrowers with the smallest type loans, with the most egregious mm -hmm. uh, really exploitation. And so I am talking to the CFPB regularly and trying to you know, bring this up on their radar screen, bring it up on the agenda. And, and I'll say something about partisanship too. You know, at the same year I was meeting with Professor, now Senator Warren, um, the leader in the Texas House on payday lending reform was former Speaker Tom Craddock, the, the, the longest serving, one of the longest serving members, Republican from Midland, very, very conservative, who, who felt a personal conviction on this. And so uh, really across the country, at the state level, it has been a very bipartisan thing uh, in support of reform. And, and I think that creation of the CFPB itself sort of politicized it and made it more partisan that, than, than what's helpful uh, in Washington. I'm hopeful, based on some meetings I've had recently, that we're, we're maybe moving into a new place. I will say that, uh, for example, in, that some states can, can put regulation in. 
and especially when it goes to, to voters. And the state of Nebraska, last November, the same day, they voted at nearly 60% to vote for President Trump. They voted at nearly 84% to cap payday loans at 36% interest. Perfect. That is, I mean, you can't, it's hard to poll, do you love your mother and get 84%, much less in a polarized environment. And so we're also going through Congress. Congress can put a 36% interest rate cap. And so we're, we're staying on the CFPB, but we're also um, looking for other, other ways forward as well. Well, I think part of the argument, if I'm a conservative and believe in free enterprise, is that if you have, uh, it's a little bit similar, I would say, to what we're dealing with with um, police officers who are bad actors, you might say, who are uh, dishonoring the profession uh, and bringing down, uh, you know, uh, the, the morale of the entire system and, and the confidence of the public about public safety. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if if you if you defend the right of people to be exploitive in the financial industry, then essentially the entire industry is stained by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire political uh, system is stained by that because it, it there, there's no confidence in the consumer in the public that there is uh, a, a sort of moral undergirding to this uh, public enterprise. That- that's absolutely right. One of, the, one of the best arguments I ever heard on this came from a very conservative, older Southern Baptist uh, political public policy leader who, you know, we're in very broad coalition, but we would sit in a meeting and he would tell a Republican member, look, if you like capitalism, <laughs> these are the things you have to guard against. There have to be some guardrails here. Right. And so he made a very pro-conservative, pro-capitalism argument saying we should be the ones Mm-hmm. That, that makes sure the extremes in this type of exploitation doesn't go on, lest someone want to take the whole thing down, is essentially what he was saying. Right. So if we're, if we're talking about good politics and we want ordinary people to be involved politically and to be advocates uh, for something like uh, payday lending reform, uh, this sort of thing, uh, what's your quick uh, two or three step process to tell uh, ordinary persons in the pew uh, with sincere faith and passion, how to get involved? Well, what I tell churches, uh, a few things. First, um, do a bit of an assessment of your mission work. Where has your church historically been engaged in the community? Mm. Let's say, for example, that they've been providing reading mentors at the local public school. Mm. Well, talk to the principal, talk to the superintendent, understand what's going on in public schools Mm. with, with funding and that sort of thing, and be willing to call your legislature, be a voice for your public schools. You know, if you're, if you're, you have a food pantry or community garden, uh, think about it from an advocacy perspective, look at Bread for the World or, or the, the uh, Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. Just be willing to take what you're already demonstrated passion to and think about it in the public policy realm. Good. The other thing I recommend is just go meet an elected official. Mm-hmm. That can be a city councilman, a mayor, you know, f- from the county commissioner, kind of from the bottom to the top. I would say start with local. Let's take a few people from your church that care. Um, ask for a meeting. Just introduce yourself. Say, hey, we go to this church. Um, we do these things in the community. We appreciate your service. We want to pray for you. Establish a relationship. Establish a personal connection. And that first time, don't ask them for anything. Right. Because almost everyone, if not everyone that meets with them, ask them for something. 
Right. And most of the times it's out of their own self-interest, whether it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's a, if they're a paid lobbyist, it's who there's, they have a contract with. But I think as people in faith, first, just make that personal connection, see where you might have something in common. Maybe your kids go to the same school uh, and, and thank them for their service. And then when you do come back with, with some sort of request, with something you're seeing, you're not asking out of your own self-interest either. And so I think that's the sort of a difference in a lot of times that, that would, would make you stand out. And so those are two very quick things. I would also say, um, you know, kind of dig deeper in those mission opportunities, ask more questions, you know, to our previous example, if someone's coming to the church looking for help with a light bill, all of a sudden, you know, what's going on? Can I help? What's with the, with the budget? And, and you might find that they have a pay down. I mean, you know, dig deeper, ask questions, learn people's stories. And I think sometimes that might, might lead to some advocacy opportunities. I and think you made a scripture, as you already said, I mean, I think we, we, we explore the Bible like we talked about already. Right, right. No, but I, I think you make a really important point too, Stephen, in that um, politicians, public servants are used to people coming and asking for something for themselves. And there's nothing wicked about that. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, often people go to say, you know, I, 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 I need something to make my business work better. There's an obstacle in the way, something of sure. that nature, whatever the case may be. But when, when people of faith get involved in this and they're going on behalf of people who are uh, their neighbors, uh, who, who um, are, are maybe not even there uh, or, or maybe are there, but you're there to support them. Uh, that makes such a difference in the, consciousness of public officials. They, they can hardly believe that that's happening because you don't have to be there. You're choosing to do that out of the passion of your faith. And it really makes a difference in motivation for them. So I think that's a splendid point and uh, uh, yeah. worth pursuing. Absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, oftentimes in giving presentations, I hear, um, you know, Christians say, oh, great, we want to be a voice for the voiceless. And I affirm that in so much as that's not out of your own self-interest, and it's clearly a, a, a biblical origin of that of that term. But people have voices <laughs> most of the time. Unfortunately, right. they're ignored or silenced or suppressed, and and sometimes don't know how to access the same things that maybe you do. So your point about bringing them along yep. is very important to the extent possible. Uh, empower folks to to know when and where and how their voice can be impactful in a systemic way. Terrific. Terrific. Stephen, thank you for all you do. Uh, thank you for uh, accepting the call to come back to Texas. And we're looking forward to your work among us here. And especially on this particular matter we've been talking about in relieving some of the predatory practices that are keeping people poor uh, and making them poor, in fact, or poorer. So uh, looking forward to working more closely together uh, in our state. Well, thank you, George. Great to be on. And, and thank you for yours and Katie's and Wilshire's contribution uh, and our partnership that led to the book, uh, The Mission of Advocacy. It's, it's been great. And I look forward to working more together. You're welcome. And uh, to all of our listeners and watchers, uh, you can get that on Amazon. Uh, it's uh, The Mission of Advocacy, Stephen Reeves and Katie Murray. Terrific. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God 
Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.